Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Calm Henderson. My first guest this week is Dr. Gabor Thomas, who's written an article in the latest issue of Current Archaeology about recent excavations of an Anglo-Saxon community at Cookham in Berkshire, which Thomas himself was centrally involved in. You can read his article in full on the Past website now. I've put a link to it in this episode's description. Also this week, I went along to the Imperial War Museum to check out the new Second World War and Holocaust galleries, which are opening to the public later this month. But first, Cookham, and here's my conversation with Dr. Gabor Thomas. Perhaps we can begin um, with a bit of background to Cookham itself. I mean, today, as you say, it's a very sort of pleasant village, but in the 8th century, it was the centre of a very bitter and long-running land dispute. Um, could you tell me why this was the case? Yes, well... Cookham sits on a very strategic point on the River Thames, um, which in the Anglo-Saxon period, as indeed for most periods, um, it was one of the principal communication arteries uh, in southern England. Um, And for that reason, because of the Thames' strategic importance, it became um, a a very important uh, disputed frontier between um, the kingdoms of of Mercia and Wessex, so we have a whole se- sort of a long period of um, sort of conflict between these two powerful kingdoms over control of the Thames. And one way that they sought to control this strategic corridor was by um, um, basically it, it, one of the means by which they did that was through ownership of monasteries. Um, which were um, important political centres and and economic ones also. They they participated in trade. So one of the ways you could kind of buttress and claim that frontier is by taking control of the monasteries that had been established along along its length. And Cookham is one of these. Um, It's a strategic point on the Middle Thames um, at a point where there's um, important... Um, routeways crossing through the Chiltern Hills to the north that would have provided access to, um, you know, the interior of the Mercian Kingdom um, and resources in the interior of the Mercian Kingdom. So in other words, it sits at a crossroads of several important communication arteries. So involved in this conflict that you talk about is the somewhat mysterious Queen Knuthrith, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yep. Um, now, she seems a pretty interesting figure, I have to say. Um, what do we know about her? Well, she was an exceedingly powerful woman. Um, she exemplifies the um, political and social power that women could gain in Anglo-Saxon England um, as uh, political players in their own right. Um, she was um, queen consort to Offer of Mercia, so the most probably most famous of all the kings of Mercia um, in the 8th century. We don't know much about her origins and background. Um, she may have been a daughter of a previous Mercian king called Penda, um, the first element of her name, um, the offspring of Penda, um, that CN um, element was shared by other offspring. So you get alliteration of names, which is quite common in Anglo-Saxon royal families. Um, so, but certainly by the time she 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 she's married to offer, she's already an, an important person. She um, writers of the time commend her for her piety. She attests charters, um, land grants, 
And uniquely, she's the only Anglo-Saxon queen to have currency or coinage minted in her own name. In fact, that's unique in a in a Northwest European context. Um, she's mentioned um, in letters that are sent to offer by the Pope. She's mentioned, um, you know, she is the signatory on on on, or, or certainly she she's she's mentioned on on those letters along with offer. So clearly, she was regarded as someone of um, particular importance um, at the time, um, and someone of, of 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 considerable political standing. And how did you first become to involved uh, with the work at Cookham? Because I gather that you read reports of some uh, excavations that took place quite a number of years ago now, and sort of became intrigued, thinking, "Oh, there's more there than meets the eye." Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, so. And the point to make here is that there's been quite a lot of local um, debate over the, the likeliest location of the historically documented monastery at Cookham. And there have been some advocates for a site um, not in the modern, not in the historic core of the village, but a couple of miles to the south on higher ground. Um, so uh, you know, th- there's th- there's been a this 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 local debate um, about back in 2005. There was a small scale project funded through the Heritage Lottery scheme um, to undertake some um, small scale work. A few trenches were opened on a site adjacent to um, Holy Trinity Churchyard. This is this is right next to the River Thames. Um, with some interesting results um, that covered some Anglo-Saxon pottery. Um, they got one radiocarbon date off an assemblage of animal bone. Um, but really, it was quite unequivocal. They didn't really know what the results meant because it was quite small scale, other than demonstrating that there was some Anglo-Saxon occupation there. So it was clear that this site um, was suggestive um, of Anglo-Saxon occupation of the right date for the monastery beside the um, medieval churchyard um, of Holy Trinity. So, um, I mean, the area that we ended up excavating in, or this this area I'm talking about, is about an acre or so. It's a prime site, right smack bang in the historic core of the village next to the next to the churchyard. So, when I first, um, you know, was 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 shown this site, I thought it had huge potential. For follow-up work, just to really help better understand what that sort of, you know, that Anglo-Saxon material right might relate to. I see. And you mentioned the river. I was just wondering, you know, you said that the that point on the Middle Thames zone has been neglected, but the sort of the Upper Thames, the Lower Thames, uh, have received a lot more attention from archaeologists and stuff like that. Um, is there a particular reason for this? Is it something to do with the geology? I think partly. I mean, one of the reasons is that the Middle Thames, I mean, this is kind of, I guess, a bit of a simplification, but, you know, it doesn't have the same potential for occupation, farming that the Upper and Lower Thames do. It doesn't have the same capacity um, for for, for, for farming and early settlement. That's partly related to geology and physical geography. Um, so I think there are some constraints that exist. The, the quality of the soils aren't so good. There are some constraints that exist in, in, in the Middle Thames when thinking about early settlement. Um, 
I mean, I think another factor is um, perhaps um, there's been less commercial excavation in on this stretch of the Thames, um, less housing developments, the kind of developments that that, that would um, give you sort of results from commercial archaeology. Um, I think there's also an element of it just being less well researched. Um, you know, there haven't been many sort of research excavations in this stretch of the Thames in the same way, for example, that have been research excavations on uh, in the upper Thames in places like Dorchester. Um, so I think it's also, you know, it's got something to do with, you know, biases in where um, the spotlight of research has been shone. So I think it's actually a combination of factors. Well, moving on to the current excavations, which took place during the summer, just the summer just gone, um, you opened new trenches along with some of your colleagues. Uh, what did you find there? Well, we we opened up about we opened up six trenches. It was still reasonably small scale because you know what we were in effect trying to do was evaluate the potential of the site and establish in basic terms what was there. So what we've discovered is a quite dense area of what you would call Middle Saxon settlement. So broadly in date, that would be 8th to 9th century date. And that extends across this one acre area to the um, west of Holy Trinity Churchyard. It's continuous, so it's telling us that it's quite a broad zone of settlement. And it comprises a series of perpendicular ditched boundaries portions of post-hole timber buildings, um, extensive midden deposits, and other elements, including um, hearths for metalworking, metal trackways, um, and other as yet to be identified structural elements that may relate to further buildings or infrastructure associated with this settlement and um, particularly down towards the river near the what would have been the the the, 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 the sort of anglo-saxon um, um, sort of ba- bank of the of the river Thames so you know lots lots of evidence for production of various kinds um, domestic occupation um, middens you know where you've got household, um, rubbish, discarded, you know, animal bone, remains of meals and so forth. Um, so really rich evidence for daily life um, in the 8th and 9th centuries. Yes, you said I was wondering what middens were for people who are perhaps not familiar with the term. And, you know, the whole site seems to have been, uh, had plenty of signs of life. Do you think it was a, a very busy, bustling area at the time? Oh, I'm certain, certainly. Um, you know, you've got, as I said, you've got, it's covering, the, the occupation that we've got is, is covering a, a pretty extensive area on the, on the west side of the, of the, of the, of certainly the medieval churchyard. And I think you probably have to presume that the Norman and later church that, that, that stands um, on the site that kind of caps Gravel Island um, likely fossilizes the site of the of the sort of Anglo-Saxon monastic church, the liturgical focus of the monastery. Um, we don't know that for sure, but I think there's a high chance that's the case. So we're we're some way to the sort of the the the, the east of what would have been the, the the focus, the liturgical focus. But nevertheless, um, you know, still it's providing us with 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 a picture of what's going on within the sort of broader monastic landscape. Yes. And um, you mentioned that 
you've uncovered uh, evidence of sort of structures that you haven't identified yet. Do you think this could actually be the monastery itself? It depends. I mean, that's an interesting question. It really forces us to ask, well, what is a monastery at this period? Um, maybe that's 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 the next question. But um, um, a monastery at this period is is well, it's a number of things. It's a church. <laughs> Um, that would have been at the, 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 if you like, the liturgical and um, spiritual core of a monastery. But, but they're also settlements in their own right. Um, they're places where certainly the monastic brethren would have lived, but also their lay dependents. And they were the, all the infrastructure that went along with a permanent settlement. So, you know, you've got food processing, you've got lots of consumption going on. Um, you've potentially got the processing of, of ag- agricultural produce, um, and you've got pr- economic various times of, types of economic production. So, in that sense, yes, we have found the monastery. So you found a lot of uh, different stuff. What makes you think you found a monastery? Well, that's a really good question. Um, there's been a lot of debate about how one defines. Um, Middle Saxon monasteries in the archaeological record at this 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 date this particular date. Now um, this debate goes back to um, about ten fifteen years ago, when on the back of uh, excavation at a place called Flixborough, um, there was an argument that a lot of sites previously characterised as monasteries on the basis of having evidence for literacy. For example, things like window glass, particular types of production, actually may instead represent um, secular high-status residences. So the signatures, in other words, that were previously argued to represent monasteries were argued to instead relate to a broader category of high-status sites. Now, I think that was a valid argument at the time, but I think the pendulum has has, has swung too far um, in that direction. And I think there is an undue hesitancy now by some archaeologists to recognise monastic sites when they're excavated, particularly at places like Cookham and Liminge, where we have watertight historical documentation that these were important monastic centres. Now, feeding into this is that rarely do you get the opportunity to actually excavate over the monastic churches, the liturgical core of these places, because they're under graveyards. So what commonly occurs, as we've got at at, uh, Cookham, is you open windows over the more peripheral areas of monasteries, the parts of monasteries to do with, that connected with domestic occupation, um, production and consumption. But that does not mean, that does not make them any less of monasteries on that basis. It's just giving you a different window on monastic life and monastic landscapes. So the big lesson here is that we shouldn't use templates drawn from places like Northumbria, where we have got evidence for um, excavated um, liturgical cores and church groups. We shouldn't be dismissive of the evidence that we find for monastic life um, in, in, in these southern areas of England. You said that your work at Cookham certainly isn't done yet, and you know you give me the impression that it's very much a work in progress. Uh, what else are you hoping to find in the coming years? Um, so, our intention is to go back and to do some um, further excavation, and um, potentially on a on a larger scale. Um, what do we hope to find? Well, there's some big questions that remain 
unanswered. I mean, some of them are chronological. So exactly when was this monastery founded? Um, unlike some other parts of Anglo-Saxon England, we don't have any sort of um, evidence that or historical records for the foundation of monasteries on the Middle Thames. So it'd be really interesting to know how far back can you push these institutions? Um, do they go right back to the earliest genera generations of Christianization towards the, you know, in the second half of the seventh century? Or are they a later phenomena here? Are they more eighth century? So there's questions like that. Um, also, there's the kind of the mapping of the, the monastic landscape. I mean, the emphasis currently has been on, you know, the domestic occupation, craft working, um, evidence related to consumption. But it's quite a broad area, this. And it may be that there is evidence for other uses of the landscape. So, for example, there may be zones of burial. There may be evidence for sort of um, lit, sort of liturgical use of, of, of this area as well. Um, we just don't know because we've we've only opened up disparate windows. Um, those are all legitimate questions, and, and and one would hope by opening up larger areas that you'd be able to address those um, through the archaeology. Is it going to be harder, do you think, to open up these other windows? Seeing possible, there's possibility of human remains, I think, still being found, but liturgical evidence is that more difficult to establish? Do you think it can be? Um, you know, I mean, by liturgical evidence, I mean one might find evidence for. I mean, who knows? There's often multiple churches on 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 monasteries of this date. I mean, it's not impossible that there's a. You know, it may well be a timber that could, there could well be evidence of that kind. A timber post hole constructed church would be within the realms of, of, of possibility, certainly. Um, you know, you just don't know. I mean, it's, it's that's 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 what's really interesting about. Mm. Um, monastic archaeology of this date. There is no set template. Everything is very diverse. Everything, uh, you know, draws upon quite localized traditions. So, you know, it's it's very much all to play for. Thanks very much to Gabor for talking to me there. Don't forget that you can read his article in the latest issue of Current Archaeology, which is out now. It's also available online at the past website. We're taking a leap from the 8th to the 20th century now as the Imperial War Museum in London is about to open a pair of major new galleries on the Second World War and the Holocaust. Spanning two floors, this £30.7 million construction project sees the Imperial War Museum become the first in the world to house dedicated Second World War galleries and Holocaust galleries under the same roof. Earlier this week, I went along to check them out for myself, and while there, I caught up with Kate Clements, curator of the galleries on the war. She began by telling me a bit about their construction and what visitors can expect. So yeah, these uh, these galleries have been five to six years in the making. Um, so we're very happy that they're now opening to visitors um, and really excited for the, uh, for people to see all the different stories and the objects that we've acquired specially for them. Um, we hope that visitors will find them really interesting and engaging. We've um, consciously made them um, very global in their outlook. So we've um, incorporated stories and objects um, from people around the world. Um, we've gone out and we've got new acquisitions and that's sort of that's loans, that's um, people who've donated items and items that we've purchased as well, because we really wanted to tell that full global story. So we've got items from 
for example, um, Italy and um, India and Japan, China and the US. Um, and we've got over 100 different people stories in the galleries um, from 30 different countries. So again, just underlining that global experience. And they are soldiers and they're civilians, um, people with different roles and different stories to tell. Um, yeah, I was interested because you said that you know the World War One galleries are sort of directly below. Was there was that a conscious decision? Were you taking inspiration from them, or were you trying to do something different with the, the Second World War galleries? Yeah, so I think it's a bit of both. Um, these uh, the new galleries, the Second World War galleries and Holocaust galleries, they're a continuation of telling that story of our remit, really our core remit. Um, so they do follow on from what was done in the First World War galleries, and um, we've taken some inspiration in terms of how we weave people's experiences into our sort of overarching narrative of this you know these vast conflicts which happened um, because it they can be a little bit overwhelming really to try and understand you know how millions of people were mobilized for war but if you um, sort of dig down to that individual level I think it does help visitors to relate to what they're seeing and to to make sense of it really so yeah we, we followed on from that but we've also made them distinctive in their own way so um, visitors will be able to see a new type of narrative and a new approach yeah i mean it's quite uh rare in fact it barely ever happens for you to have a gallery about the war and about the holocaust in the same place and you know sort of uh, conjoined do you think it's important to cover them together and understand them as one event rather than as as different events yeah, we, we think it is really important um, and we've consciously made links between the galleries just to underline that because we want our visitors to realise that the Holocaust and the Second World War were linked. Um, you know, the, the events of the Holocaust really were only able to happen because of the events of the Second World War. So um, visitors get that understanding through the objects and the displays, but um, embedding each of the narratives within the other gallery spaces. So there are points within the Second World War displays where you encounter part uh, points of the holocaust narrative so we've been careful to to sort of weave that story throughout and also the second world war galleries feature some of the stories that are also in the holocaust galleries above so we have a, a family the vol family and we have um objects from them in the second world war galleries and up in the holocaust gallery so there is that link and we have that linking moment as well where we've created basically a gap between the galleries which is quite innovative we think um and it's a sort of a, a moment where we've suspended a v1 flying bomb between the gallery spaces and we're able to interpret them in the second wall galleries from the perspective of how slave laborers built the v weapons and how the v weapons um, affected civilians how it how they were targeted by them and how they they unfortunately lost their lives in those attacks and then above in the holocaust galleries they interpret it in the sense of how jewish prisoners were used to build the tunnels in which the v weapons were constructed so it's that linking moment and a really a really clear link between those different narratives yeah, so you, you have a very impressive collection of uh, artefacts in these galleries, some of which have never been in Britain before, some of which have never seen you know the light of day before. You want to tell me about some of the, the highlights, if it were? Yeah, of course. We've, um, we've collected quite a lot of new items, and um, we're really pleased with what we may... We'll what we've been able to add to IWM's public displays. Um, so some of the items, some of the highlights I can think of, um, are we have a piece of the USS Arizona, which was a US battleship, obviously damaged at um, the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor. That was really special for us to get because um, it hadn't been allowed out of um, the US to be displayed in a 
museum outside of the US before, so we're, we're really happy to have been able to add that to the displays. Um, and some other items include, um, we've got a, a piece of uniform from um, the Chinese Nationalist Army, so that's quite quite new for us to be displaying. Um, I've acquired some new collections to tell that D-Day story, so I've got um, a, a different person representing each of the five beaches, and they reflect the nationality from those beaches. So I was able to include um, a U.S. Army medic for um, Utah Beach and a member of the U.S. Navy for Omaha and a Canadian war artist for, for Juneau Beach. So that was really great to tell that full story. And then in the post-war section of the galleries, I've added some, some really great new items there, including um, some objects um, that belong to a woman who was caught up in the partition of India after the war, um, some items that she took with her, and also um, objects which belong to a man from Jamaica who had served um, Britain's um, armed service during the war, tried to settle in Britain post-war and find a new life for himself, but found that he was discriminated against and, and no longer really as welcomed as he had been during the war years. So we have the, um, the suitcase that he brought over with him, as well as the Stetson hat that he bought so that he could look smart for potential employers. So they were really great I- items to add. And we didn't have anything like that in our collections before. So it was really fantastic to be able to acquire those and put them on display. And Kate, um, I understand that you've got some very sort of personal touches in this collection. Do you want to tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So um, we have one area of the galleries where we look at um, how war affected Britain in sort of 1940. And we've created um, a sort of typical British home in that area where visitors can explore that space and see some of the kind of furnishings from the time and even tune into a radio and listen to programming from the time Um, and when we came to furnishing that place we needed to have some photographs and I suggested why not have photographs of our grandparents from the war so my one one of my grandparents their wedding photo is sort of hanging over the the mantelpiece and my other grandparents um, Rex and Peggy Cleaver are on the writing desk and uh, granddad's there in his RAF uniform and my grandma's there as a land girl so um, it was really nice to be able to include them and sort of leave a personal lasting touch on the galleries. That was Kate Clements speaking to me there. The galleries themselves open to the public on the 20th of October. I definitely recommend that you go and see them if you can. And keep an eye out for more coverage coming soon in a Military History Matters magazine and on the past website. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, Dr Gabor Thomas and Kate Clements, and to you for listening. We hope you'll join us again soon.